0: listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, will you turn with me to First Peter chapter 2? First Peter chapter 2, we'll get there in a minute. We're going to continue our series this morning through this book, but as you're turning there, I want to invite you into an opportunity that's coming up. In our church, if you have been paying attention to the world around us, you know that people are hurting, and that's generally always the case. But specifically in this season, and what I mean is particularly the chaos that's happening in Afghanistan, um, the the Haiti, the country of Haiti, the devastation that they're enduring. Um, the, the hurricane that swept through Louisiana, the devastation and destruction down there, and really as it's kind of swept up through our country and the flooding. And really, the reason why I mention this is um, at, people are hurting. And as the church, we have an opportunity to respond. So at the end of any any of our gatherings, we say, go and be the what? Go and be the church. Because the church is not a place you go, it's, a, it's people to belong to. And as an opportunity, as the church, we have an opportunity to to, to meet others in the brokenness of their lives um, and to respond to the good news of the gospel, to help them not only with the, the physical needs they have but also to bring them the hope of the good news of the gospel that we are loved by God. Not because of anything that we do or don't do but because of who Christ is and what he's done. We have an opportunity to respond. So I mentioned that this weekend because uh, we wanna respond. And this is an opportunity for our church, and when I say our church, I don't mean CBC as some brand or some acronym. I'm talking about you, me, us. We want to respond uh, to these people in their needs. And so we sent a staff member this past week. We had a staff member down in Louisiana um, trying to figure out what we can do. Basically, we want to put a team together of people uh, to send them down, to come alongside folks, and that's everything from Working a chainsaw, removing debris, re-roofing, ca- tearing stuff out, carrying logs, all the way to here's a bottle of water and a granola bar, can I pray for you? And anywhere in between, right? We're trying to figure out the details of that. Um, in, in Afghanistan specifically, we uh, can't say much about this because of the sensitivity of the, the, the spiritual climate there. Um, but we've identified a partnership who has two local church leaders on the ground. They know of 30 known Christians in and around the city of Kabul, Kabul, however you say that, um, and, and we wanna partner with them and we have the opportunity to partner with them. So they are, they are working to meet humanitarian needs and provide meals and come alongside these people and encourage the Christians there and also the non-Christians there because they're working to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in these unreached places, places you and I could not go, risking their lives for those things. And so we wanna come alongside them and partner them also uh, in the country of, of Haiti as well. And so the reason I share all this is to invite you to be a part of this work. Like I said, we're working out the details for the trip to Louisiana specifically, but wanna invite you, if you're interested in that, again, anything from I can use a chainsaw to I can carry things to I would love to pray and encourage people. Um, you can go to cbcsavannah.com relief. And if you go there, you can fill a short form out. That's not you signing up for the trip because you don't know when the trip is, all right? Because neither do we. Um, but we're trying to figure it out. You're putting your name down. In from, you're saying, I'm interested in hearing more about it. Um, and even if you're interested in saying, hey, I wanna hear when this is happening specifically so I can be praying for God to do what only he can do as some of our own go uh, and do that. So I'd love to invite you to do that. Also, if you'd like to give financially to any of these, these efforts in Haiti, Louisiana, or in Afghanistan, you can do that on our, on our online giving platforms. Um, there is a drop down menu, and you can designate which one you 'd like this to go to. Again, this is not, not just for our elders to decide hey we 're going to do this, we 're going to give some money. we are. but this is also for us, as the church, that we get to participate in the work that god 's doing in the world together, we are the church, and we 're going to see this here in first Peter. so let 's look there together. Book of first Peter, if you 're a guest with us, maybe you missed some of this series up to this point. The book of First Peter, quite simply is about what it looks like to follow Jesus and to live your life with the hope that only he can bring. That's what the book's about. Peter takes the whole first chapter and a half of this letter, and he just simply says, the hope that Jesus brings is better. His hope is better. It's better than hope that you can get from anything. It's a hope that actually transforms your life. It changes the way you live. Now, today, the section we're gonna cover, 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10, is essentially an exclamation point on that sentence, the hope that Jesus brings is better. All right, and then starting next week, Peter's going to move from a general application of the hope is better to here's how that living hope should change the way that you interact in your city, change the way you interact in your family, change the way the church is shaped. It becomes more specific application. We're going to start that next week. But again, this is the exclamation point on the sentence, the hope that Jesus brings is better. And in verse one, before we get to the exclamation point, I want you to see what he's saying. In verse one of chapter one, Peter says, This is who I'm writing a letter to. I'm writing a letter to those who are a letter to those who are elect exiles. Okay? So if you have a different translation, your Bible may say stranger or foreigner. But that's literally what this word means. It means a person who comes to a place from a foreign land. That's what exile means. And here's an example. Every single time I've been to South America, which is several times, I've been to several different countries. For whatever reason, I spend time with children there either in orphanages or through churches or in communities where they're, you know, impoverished communities where there's children there. And every single time I go there, what happens, without fail, is the children begin to whisper to themselves and then point at me, okay? And they all call me the same name. It's like there's an underground thing saying, he's coming, call him this when he gets here. You know what it is? One guess. Giraffe. (laughs) Every single time, they call me giraffe. Only one time was it anything different, And I heard him saying a word that sounded like giraffe, but it was a little bit different. So I asked the kid, I said, hey, what's what's he saying? What did he just call me? Should I be offended? He goes, he said big giraffe. (laughs) Um, and, And the point is that in those environments, I was clearly a foreigner. Clearly not Guatemalan is what was happening as I'm walking through the street. They're going, that guy's different. He's not from around here. He's in exile. And when Peter writes this letter to this group of Christians, he says, that's who you are. You are exiles, your life is different, you are in a place that is not your home, right? It's visibly apparent, it's noticeable that something is different about you. But he doesn't just call them exiles, he calls them elect exiles, right? And this word elect, it means to be chosen or picked by God. But we need to understand something about this election. What Peter just said is that what causes us to be exiles or what causes us to be different is that we're chosen by God and not the other way around. Here's what that means. We're not different. God doesn't choose us because we're different. We're different because we're chosen by God, and that is a huge thing for us to grab onto. Our identity as exiles is because of what God does for us and not what we do for him. This is why Peter says, starting in verse three of chapter one, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you. So Peter says, blessed be the God and Father according to whose mercy? His. But according to his mercy, why? Because of something we did? He was merciful for us. to us? No, because he caused us. He's the one who caused us to be born again to a living hope. Where We go, well, how are we born again? Is it something we do? No, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you think, okay, well, He caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus. God, I cannot talk today. Gosh, right? I'm talking and it's not coming out right. All right, so we're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and you think, well, surely it's up to us to keep the work up though. He starts the work of salvation and then it's our job to keep the work up. He says, no, your inheritance is kept for you in heaven. Jesus does this. We're different because God chooses us, right? He doesn't choose us because we're different or better. And God doesn't choose us because anything about us, right? He says we're born again, we're made new through the resurrection of Jesus. So the whole first chapter and a half, Peter is describing, this is what it means to be chosen by God. This is how it shapes you. This is how it changes your life. And he starts by describing this relationship that's vertical. So you're transformed from the inside out in this vertical relationship, your relationship between you and God. In verse 17, he says, and if you call on him as father... So not only does he say that we have access to God, the God of the universe, he says we have access to him as father. So I don't know about you, but you know when my kids call on me? All the time. All the time, dad, 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 dad. When they need something, even when they don't. Dad, what? I don't know. You know, like just all the time. So my one and a half year old daughter, she's she's learning how to use FaceTime. So this is the world we live in. This is the culture we live in. I'm at work she will go grab my wife's phone, bring it to her, and say, Dada. Right? Oh, it's amazing, I know. <laughs> so she'll take the phone to her, and she'll say, Dada, she wants to call me. So she will, and you know what I'll do? I answer, because she's my little girl. And she doesn't have an agenda. She doesn't have a problem for me to solve, this big solution she wants me. She just wants to call me, and she can. So she does, right? She has access to me as her father. My middle son, Brooks, when he... When he finishes a snack, and we're horrible parents, so we don't give like healthy snacks, it's always something that comes out of a package, really processed, you know? Um, It's a work in progress, we're working. So he takes the trash and he brings it to me when he finishes. I kid you not, I've seen this child walk past a trash can on multiple occasions to bring me his trash. And it's a discipleship issue, okay? He's three, we're working on it, Um, but, And he doesn't process it this way, but what's going on in his head is actually really profound because what's happening is he goes, he believes that he has such access to me as his father, he can bring me his trash and I'll take care of it for him. And this is what Peter says is true about you and me. We call on him as father. We can come to him all the time when we have an agenda, when we have a problem, even when we don't, even when all we have to bring is our trash. Peter's describing, this is what it means to be born again, you call him his father. And he anticipates some pushback because that's, what's your first response when you hear, hey, you, right now, not some future version of you when you figure out all your mess, but you, right now, you can call on the God of the universe as Father. You think, no way. There's no way. That's not me. I don't measure up. I don't belong. I can't possibly be true about me. And Peter anticipates that pushback And so in verse 18, he says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter says, I know you don't deserve it because neither do I, but you were ransomed. This word means to be liberated by payment. The idea is that we're slaves to our sin, owned by it, crush crushed underneath the weight of the debt that we owe as a result of our sin with nothing we could do to climb out and Jesus shows up and he pays the ransom. Not with money, not with something that we could ever possibly scrape up with what? With his blood. He pays the penalty for our sin, meaning Jesus dies the death that we deserve so that we could have life in him. Peter says, you call on him as father because you know you were ransomed. Because you know and understand the length that God has gone to give you access to him and you know the great cost that he's paid and so you go to him and you call him, even when all you have to bring is your trash, you call on him. We're chosen by God, right, and it makes us different. It makes us exiles, it sets us apart, it changes our vertical relationship, but it also changes our horizontal relationships. Bill talked about this last week, starting in verse 22. Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, right? This is a command, and you go, okay, well, why? Because since you have been born again, since you have been ransomed, and since you call on God as Father, not only should that shape the way that we interact with God, it should shape the way that we interact with the people around us. And Peter wants his audience to know that the gospel, the work of Christ on the cross, the gospel, it starts with our vertical relationship, but it doesn't end there, that as we become convinced, as we know that we're ransomed and we know the cost that he paid for us, as we become convinced in our minds and in our hearts of who our God is and what he has accomplished for us, and he actually does love us, as we become convinced of that, his point is it compels us to love the people around us. It spills out into our relationships with people. This is why he says in chapter two, verse one, so... Since that's true, since you know you're ransomed, and since you've been born again to a living hope, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And this isn't just a random list of things that are coming to Peter's mind. This is a specific list of sin that destroys horizontal relationships. If you are intentionally malicious to people, do you have a good relationship with them? No. If you're envious of what they have and what you don't have at the depth of your relationship, is it any good? No. If you slander them, talk behind their back when they're not looking, how's your relationship, right? His point is, these are the things that destroy it and since you know that you've been ransomed by God, he says, put them away. Peter says, we're exiles because the hope that Jesus brings is better. The love that God has for us transforms us from the inside out. It changes our relationship with God. It changes our relationships with each other. That's the sentence. The hope that Jesus brings is better. Now, here's the exclamation point. I want you to hear it, starting in verse four. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And you're like, that's the exclamation point? Are you sure? <laughs> right? That's confusing. You're right, it is. Because of some of the imagery, the language that Peter uses, it is difficult to grab onto what he's saying. But if you cut out some of the commentary, Here's what he just said. This is the point of the sermon. He says, as you come to him, you are being built up for a purpose. This is the point of the passage. This is the point of our sermon. As you come to him, you are being built up for a purpose. And so I want you, I want us to look at this in, in four sections, even though there's only three things that I said, because as you come to him, I wanna do in two. So the first thing Peter says is as you come, as you come, right? Peter is talking about movement here. Now we move toward things, all the time, but we move toward different things in different ways, right? So do you move toward the DMV the way you move toward the beach? No. Do you move toward um, work on Monday morning the way that you move toward the house on Friday afternoon? No. Right? We move toward different things in different ways. Some things we reluctantly moved toward and other things we enthusiastically move toward. And this is what Peter's saying. As you come, as you move, and the good news is we don't have to guess what type of movement he's talking about because he just told us in verse two and three. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk since you've tasted and seen the Lord is good. And then he says, as you come. So the, what the movement he's talking about is move toward him the way that Babies move toward milk, right? This word come is actually the same word that Hebrews 4 translates draw near, right? And maybe you're familiar with this passage. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace or come to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The point is that Peter's not talking about reluctantly come, he's saying you should enthusiastically come, right? Since you've tasted and saw, see the Lord is good, you come, He didn't say, since you saw it was good, you came one time. He didn't say, since you've heard that Jesus was was worth it or your life might get a little bit better, you might be able to get things back on track, you came to him one time. It's not a one-time thing, a one-time event. Coming to Jesus is an everyday reality. It didn't happen one time when you were in high school back at youth camp or that one time in college when you were really serious about Jesus. No, it is an everyday reality. You come as a newborn longing for milk. How do newborns long for milk? Often, often. It's their primary priority in their life, right? Have you ever been so busy in your life? Like for me, it's not necessarily the work I do for the church, but like if I'm doing a project, building something with my hands, I've gotten so busy before that you look up and you go, man, I forgot to eat lunch today. I got so busy, it's five o'clock. I didn't even eat lunch today. You know who that's never happened to? A baby baby. Babies never forget to eat because it is a top priority for them and that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, as you come to him. Not a one-time thing. It is an everyday reality. And the second thing he says is, as you come to him. So it's, it's clear here that he's talking about Jesus, but I want you to see how he describes Jesus in verse four. As you come to him, what's he say? A living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So Peter calls Jesus a living stone. And if you were confused earlier, um, you're not alone, all right? This is confusing, because Peter's breaking one of the biggest rules of writing is he's mixing his metaphors. Just started talking about babies and milk, and now he's talking about stones, and somehow this stone's alive, okay? And not only that, he mixes his metaphor again, because this living stone is actually two different stones depending on what we do with the stone. It's confusing, right? He's mixing his metaphors. What's happening here is that Peter... He just really likes to use illustrations about rocks. And that's not a joke. Like, he just really does. And the reason why, and you will know this if you're familiar with your Bible, is that when Jesus calls Peter to follow him as a disciple, Peter wasn't his name. It was Simon, right? Peter's name was Simon. And what's happening is in Matthew 16, you don't have to turn there, um, but in Matthew 16, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, and he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist and others people say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. That's what they're saying. Jesus goes, ah, it doesn't really matter. Actually, here's what I wanna know. Who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up. He's a spokesperson for the disciples. He says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God, meaning you are the one, the promised one that we've been talking about and hoping for and waiting for for thousands of years. You're the one, the Christ, the one who would come and take away the sins of the world. And Jesus responds this way. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That just means son of a man named Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, you didn't get this from Jonah, but from my father who is in heaven. He says, I tell you this, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The reason why uh, Jesus gives him this name Peter is because the name Peter in Greek sounds like the word rock in Greek. And so after Peter's confession of who Jesus is, Jesus changes his name to rock. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. But what Jesus isn't saying, he's not saying, I'm gonna build my church on Peter. Other religions think that, they're getting it wrong. He's not saying, I'm gonna build my church on Peter. He says, on this rock, on this confession that you have made, that that's who I am. That I'm the Christ, that I'm the son of the living God, that I am the one who was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that I am the one who was promised who would come, the lamb of God that would come to take away the sins of the world. That is who I am. And Jesus says, on that rock, that confession, that is where I will build my church. On men and women who are willing to stand and say, the ho- my hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what he says he's gonna build his church. And so what Peter does As he says, Jesus is a living stone. That's what he's thinking about. And he explains what that means. He says, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. And then what he does in verse six to eight is he quotes some Old Testament scripture to make his point. Like preachers, right? You say something and then you say, hey, let me show you in the Bible where I'm getting this. That's what Peter does. So he says, Jesus is this living stone. And he says, I want you to see where I'm getting it. So verse six, he says, for it stands in scripture, let me show you where I'm getting this, And then he quotes Isaiah 28. He says, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse seven, so the honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, and then he quotes Psalm 118. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he quotes again Psalm eight, sorry, Isaiah eight, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So Peter says, Jesus is the living stone, And depending on on how we view him, he is either going to be one of two things, either the cornerstone or the stumbling stone, right? So let's talk about these. What's what's it mean when he says he's the cornerstone? Peter says Jesus is the cornerstone. He's chosen by God and he's precious. If you have another translation, uh, your Bible might say he's the foundation stone, right? So what Peter's doing, he's using with these rocks, with his living stone metaphor, he's using an architectural kind of illustration, And so a definition for cornerstone kind of from that architectural camp is be a cornerstone is the first stone laid for the structure while all other stones are laid in reference to that cornerstone. And that's what Peter Peter says says Jesus is. He says he's the foundation. He's the one on whom everything everything is built. built. He's the one one who holds everything everything up. He's the first stone, the most important, the one that everything or everyone now aligns their life to. What he's saying is that Jesus is the only foundation that can hold the weight of your world. Not only that, Jesus is the only foundation that can hold the weight of the world. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation. The second way he describes the living stone of Jesus is he says he's a stumbling stone, right? A rock of a fence. And so I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear this, this term stumbling stone. For me, it was the, uh, the, the old PC game, the Oregon Trail. Anybody? Just a few of us, right? A, a, a shred few who spent Glorious afternoons in elementary school forging the Oregon Trail, right? Let me just tell you, exhilarating way to spend your afternoon until the screen pops up. Uh-oh, trouble on the road. There's a rock, right? Because what could happen is your, your horse or your ox could break his leg and then you're going no, no further on the Oregon Trail. Or what, You know, God forbid, your wagon breaks a wheel, okay? That is not a helpful illustration for what a stumbling stone is, but that's where my mind went, so you're welcome. Or I apologize, I'm not sure, right? So Peter says, Jesus is the living stone. And what he's saying is, it's alive. He will be for you. This is what Peter's saying. He will be for you either the cornerstone or a stumbling stone. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying it's gonna go either really good or really bad when it comes to this rock. He is either the thing you build your life on or or he is the thing you will spend your entire life tripping over, there are only two types of people that Peter describes here. You either trust him or you trip over him. You build your life completely on the rock, the foundation that is Jesus Christ. You see him as the cornerstone and you align your life to him and you submit yourself in obedience to him and his word or he becomes to you a stumbling stone, right? You spend your life constantly wondering why no matter what you do, how hard you try, how much money you make, how great the vacations are you take, life never really seems to be what you wish it would be. Because if Jesus isn't the cornerstone, he's a stumbling stone. And you can never get where you think you need to go. And even if you do get there, you think, I thought this would satisfy me more than it does. That's what's happening here. Peter says, that's because if if he's not your cornerstone, Jesus is your stumbling stone. And we don't necessarily like that idea, we don't. But it doesn't really matter what we like because it's in the Bible. In verse six where it says whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We like that. Whoever believes in him will not. What a promise from God. If I believe in Jesus, I'll never be put to shame, right? We love that. I'll buy the t-shirt. We like that, but if that's true, then the opposite of that's true then. That if you don't believe in him, that you will be put to shame. And and, and it's easy to kind of hear that and go, well surely that's not what Jesus means. Right? Surely that's not what, what Peter means when he says this, because I don't think Jesus would say that. Well, let me tell you what Jesus does say, okay? Because what's interesting is that Jesus quotes the same passage in Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He quotes the same passage in a parable that he tells to a group of religious leaders in Matthew 21. The parable is called the parable of the tenants, Right, and so really what he's saying there, he's trying to explain to them who he is, right? And so he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? But he shows the Pharisees by telling them this parable. He says, it's like a, like a man who owned a vineyard. And this vineyard was fruitful, right? This was a, this was a good vineyard but he had other business to attend to in a different country, so the man leaves and he doesn't want the vineyard to go to waste, so he leases it out, right? He's a good businessman, he's profitable, find some folks who can work this, take the fruit and then I'll get a portion of it, right? So what happens is when the owner sends a servant to come and collect on the rent, instead of the tenants paying what they owe, Jesus says they kill him because they don't wanna pay. Basically they're going, why would I pay you? I know, right? And so Jesus tells a story, He keeps going. He says, well, when the owner finds out, he sends some more servants this time. He sends some people who know how to handle themselves, right? Some guys who are you know, pretty good at conflict resolution, if you know what I mean. So he sends those guys and they show up and the tenants kill them too. So Jesus is telling the story and you know people's wheels are just turning. And he says, so the owner decides, what is he gonna do? He says, I'm gonna send my son to collect on the rent because surely... They wouldn't disrespect me in the way that they would actually kill my own son. And then Jesus says this in Matthew 21, verse 38. When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And then Jesus jumps out of the store and he addresses the the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? And they say to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out of the vineyard, rent the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him fruit in their season. And Jesus says to them, and he quotes Psalm 118, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then in verse 44 he says, and the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone it will crush him. And so if we wonder, surely Jesus wouldn't say this. Jesus actually interprets this passage to mean that there's no neutral response to him. That's where this is coming from, that Jesus is either the cornerstone or he is the stumbling stone. And the whole reason I think Peter quotes Psalm 118 here is because he's standing with Jesus as he has this conversation. He says, have you not read the scriptures, the stone, the stone, like Peter's ears perk up and he goes, oh yeah. That's what's in Peter's mind when he writes this in 1 Peter 2. Peter says, Jesus is the cornerstone. And if he's not your cornerstone, he will become to you a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Either trust him with your life or you spend your life tripping over him. You may not even realize it, constantly wondering why is everything broken? Why are things so difficult? Peter says Jesus is the cornerstone. He says he's chosen and rejected, meaning Jesus takes the rejection that we deserve so that we could know what it feels like to experience life accepted, By God the Father. Peter says, as you come to the living stone, you build your life on him, you align your life to his. He says, as you do that, you are being built up, right? In verse five, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Built up as a spiritual house. We don't have a ton of time for this, but what this is, this spiritual house, it's not a physical house, it's a spiritual house. And this is temple language, So we went through the book of Exodus in the spring. We talked a lot about the tabernacle. Tabernacle, temple, same idea. This is the place on the earth where the presence of a holy God dwells with sinful people. And Peter says, as you come to him, knowing that you're ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ, knowing that you call on him as father, as you come to him longing like a baby for spiritual milk, as you come to Jesus, this everyday reality, he is building you up into a place for his spirit to dwell Right? This is what he means when he says we're living stones. It means the presence of God is no longer a tent in the desert or a temple in Jerusalem. It's you and me. It's the church. The church of Jesus Christ. You remember when you were a kid, you learned this, this deal right here? This is the church, right? It's like, well, these are my hands, but this is the church. This is the what? The steeple, and you open the doors and you see all the people. Well, it turns out, according to Peter, that's really bad theology, Because the church doesn't have a steeple, it can't, because it's not a building, it's a people. That's what Peter's saying, a people, that we we come to him and it's a place for his spirit to dwell, right? We're a people chosen by God to call on him as father. And Peter says, as you come, you are being built up. And what's important for you to see here is that every time this word you shows up, as you come in this passage, as you come, you are being built up, it's actually you plural, not you singular, which means if a good southerner were writing this translation, he would say, as y'all come, y'all are being built up. That's what the scriptures are saying right now, meaning you don't build yourself up, but as you come to Jesus, he's the one who does that work, and he's not building you alone. He's building us, y'all, into something. God is building us into something, which means for us that your spiritual growth is not primarily or ultimately an individual reality. It's not. It's a corporate reality. The way That gospel change happens in our lives primarily is in and through community as we are built up together as his church. So like living stones, we are built together, but we're not like my kids. My boys love to collect rocks for no purpose. They put them in a shoebox, they keep them in their closet all the time, spilling out in our laundry and their cup holders, just on my couch, just rocks. They just love to collect rocks, again, for no purpose. God has taken these living stones for a purpose. And he's gonna tell us, What it is. At the end of verse 5, Peter says, Jesus is building us into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. So if you're new to church or maybe uh, your friend has been inviting you and you finally agreed to come and now the pastor's talking about sacrifices, okay, don't get, don't freak out, don't get nervous. We have no back room full of goats for later. That doesn't exist, okay? That's not what Peter's talking about. And the reason I know that is he says that we are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, which means these sacrifices are different because the book of Hebrews says that that Jesus is the sacrifice once for all. He's the perfect sacrifice to the degree that the altar now is closed. There is not a drop of blood left to be sacrificed because Jesus' sacrifice was in fact once for all. So it's a different type of sacrifice that Peter's talking about. What he's talking about is what Paul says in Romans 12, verse one, where he says, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. The point is that the offering of the sacrifice that we bring to God is not one of death, it's one of our lives, a living sacrifice, the way that we live our lives. Like we talked about earlier, as we come to him and we call on him as father, and we become convinced by the power of the Holy Spirit that we're actually loved by God. We become convinced of that. It compels us to love the people around us. God's love for us spills over into our horizontal relationships, and what happens is it begins, like I said before, the gospel presses things out of our lives. Like, so, put away all malice. So, when I'm convinced that I'm loved by God, I'm not gonna be intentionally malicious to people because why would I wanna harm them for having something that I don't have, right? The gospel presses these things out of our lives. Instead of deceit, I can embrace the truth. I don't have to pretend and be a hypocrite, pretend I'm someone I'm not, to convince you to approve of me because I am confident in the approval that I have received from God the Father. The love of God for us, convinced by that, compels us to love the people around us, right? We don't envy others and what they have because we're actually confident in, in who God says the life he has for us. We can be joyful for the way that God has blessed them. And we don't slander people or tear them down with our words, instead our words are an encouragement to the people around us. This is what happens, as we're convinced of God's love for us, it shapes the way that we interact with the people around us. This is what Peter means, is a sacrifice to God through Jesus Christ, this is what it means to be a holy priesthood, priesthood. What is a priest, right, a priest was someone who had Uh, access to God, who are representatives to the people around them for God and the reason why they had this access is not because of really anything they did, it's because of who they were. Because priests had to come from the tribe of what? Levi. So really it was about who's your family and then you got this position. That's what a priest was. You were given special access to God and you were representative to God for the people and Peter comes around and he says, that's how you thought of priests? He goes, but that's you now. That's you now, you are a holy priesthood. This is who Jesus is building you up into. It doesn't matter if you're from the right kind of family because he's making you into a new kind of family. It doesn't matter if you feel like here's all the reasons why I don't belong and all the the reasons on my resume why God couldn't possibly love me this way or why I couldn't possibly be a representative of him to the world around me, why I couldn't possibly have access to God the Father as a child because I don't belong. And he goes, I'm making you new. I'm making you a new kind of person. Listen to how he describes this in verse nine. He says, you, again, y'all, you are a chosen race, chosen by God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a people who belong to him. And here's why, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once, he says, you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. So, Right after, Peter says, Jesus is either the cornerstone or the stumbling stone. People will either accept him or they will reject him. He says, but you are. He doesn't say, here's what you do. He says, here's who you are because our identity in Christ comes way before our activity for Christ. The way we've said it before here at this church is that our position drives our practice, not the other way around. That's not what we do is why God chooses us, it's, he chooses us and it changes who we are and that shapes what we do, right? Peter says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation. Is there a more, um, like in our culture, is there a, a more supercharged word than race right now? Maybe masks or vaccines, but, but it's close. And this word race here in, in the Bible, other places it's translated kind or type. And In Matthew 13, here's an example. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. It's thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind, every race. Peter says, Jesus is building a new kind of people. Jesus is building a new kind of people, people made up, Revelation says, of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And and this does not mean that our cultural, um, our ethnic heritage doesn't matter. Of course it does. Of course it does. What it means is that this is now our primary identifier, that we are a new kind of people. We are a people for his own possession. That he chose us to belong to him as sons and daughters and then everything else, it might matter, but it comes after that. We're a people for his own possession. Again, this choosing is not because we're awesome or because of anything we did. In fact, I think if you wanted to make a biblical argument for what type of person does God choose, I think you can make an easier argument that he intentionally chooses people who are not awesome. It's an easier argument to make. And, and the thing is, though, we still, in our minds, we think, man, how crazy would it be? What do you think God would do if fill in the blank became a Christian? What if you too, right, started leading worship what if they, what, what, like those types of thoughts. What, what would God do if these people became a Christian, right? It's easy for us to think that way. And let me just tell you, that would be awesome. Angels would rejoice in heaven every, because they do, every single time a sinner repents, but God doesn't need fill in the blank to accomplish his purposes in the world. And you know how I know? Because Peter just said that Jesus Christ, with him as the cornerstone, we are his chosen people with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. God doesn't need fill in the blank to accomplish his purposes. He's doing just fine with you and me. And maybe, just maybe, if you and I would get off the fence a little bit and stop trying to live our lives with our foot in both worlds, going, I kinda wanna trust Jesus, but I kinda want this over here. Maybe if we would get off the fence and put our feet firmly on the solid rock, the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ, we actually would see God do some of those amazing things. If we lived our lives that way, as you come to him, he says, you're being built up, made into a new kind of people for a purpose. What purpose? Verse nine, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our purpose, God is building us into a spiritual house where his spirit can dwell, why? So we can proclaim his excellency so we can proclaim his excellency. Here's the thing, we all do this. We are all proclaimers of things that we think are excellent, all of us. When we experience something worthy of sharing, we will share it. We wanna let somebody know about it. This is all social media is, right? People sharing what they think is excellent. We will even share before we experience it because ultimately, we don't want people to think the thing is excellent, we want them to think we are, right? So you get a plate of food and you go, look how excellent this looks. Haven't even touched it yet, but I bet it's great. In reality, I'm impressive. I eat nice things, right? Read this book. I read 17 pages of this book, but I don't even know if it's good or not, but I want you to see I'm reading. I'm excellent. I'm impressive. We are proclaimers of things that we think are excellent. All right? how many of you already said this this morning? This one's gonna sting a little bit. Did you see the game last night? Right, what are we, what are we proclaiming what are we proclaiming that we think is worth sharing when we say, hey, did you see the game last night? By the way, yes I did. And it was excellent, all right? Um, but I, also I need to say this. 18, what, what 18 to 22 year old kids, regardless of what color jersey they're wearing, even if it's red and black, what 18 or 22 year old kids do with a ball is a really bad place to build your life. It really is. Now again, I'm not saying it's bad to enjoy things, to enjoy Georgia football, if you saw my kids, they're all three wearing Georgia gear this morning, right? I'm not saying it's bad to enjoy those things, what I'm saying, it is a really bad God. And it's not just college football, right? It's success in your career, it's your kids, it's your spouse, it's a certain car, it's if we could just get this house or move into this neighborhood, and on and on and on we could go, and while all those things might be good, they are horrible. Cornerstones for your life. The weight of your world will crumble them and you will be left broken and worse off than you were before, constantly wondering why, no matter what I do, how hard I try, how much money we make, nothing ever seems to work. If Jesus isn't your cornerstone, He is your stumbling stone. Peter says, Since you've tasted and seen the Lord is good, your life should proclaim the excellencies of Him who what? who called you out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We've Been called out of the darkness of our sin and into the marvelous light of our savior. We can see now. We've tasted and seen that he's good. And so I want us to respond to this message. I'm gonna do it in a couple of ways. I know I'm going long. You're at the 1045, sorry. I'm gonna invite, if you're you're gonna serve communion for us today, would you go ahead and head to the back and grab the elements. Um, I want us to respond to this. To this idea, this reality That Peter says, if you've tasted and seen the Lord is good, then your life should be, you should be a proclaimer of his excellency. And you know what I thought of when I read that was in John chapter 14. Sorry, John 11, way off. And so you can turn there if you want, John 11. If not, it won't be on the screen, you can just listen. Peter says, we should be proclaimers of his excellency who's what, called us out. Think about that when you hear this. John 11, verse 38, he says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, he came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it, and Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. In the same way that Jesus calls out to God the Father, we've been given access to call on God the Father. Father, I knew you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe when you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out. And his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is our story. Not just Lazarus' story, this is our story. And we proclaim his excellency because we've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The weight of our sin, the debt has been paid by Jesus Christ and so now we build our life on him. The tone, the tenor of what Peter's saying here, it's not, hey, you're a fool, build your life on the rock. He's going, have you tasted have you seen? He's good. So you build your life on him. So I want us to respond by taking communion. So you guys can go ahead and start passing those around. And, and as they do that, maybe as it's coming through, you can, you can grab it, hang on to it. We're gonna take it later in a bit. But I want you just to ask yourself this question as they're coming around. As you think about this, you ask yourself this question. Who or what does your life proclaim is Excellent who or what does your life proclaim is excellent? Jesus says that the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. So I think a good question would be, instead of me asking you, are you a Christian? I ask your neighbor. What would your neighbor say about your life? Who or what does your life proclaim is impressive, is valuable, is excellent, is, can hold the weight of your life? And The second question would be, if it's not Jesus, it might be that you've never built your life on the cornerstone, the rock that is Jesus. You never tasted and seen that he's good. If that's the case, he is for you a stumbling stone, but it doesn't have to be that way. We would love to talk with you. We'd love to talk with you about that, but maybe you have tasted, but you feel like maybe your foot's just shifted a little bit. There's been a time in my life where I've Built my life on the rock, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, but today I'm not so sure. So I ask you this How long has it been since you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good? And again, the tone of the passage is not, you're a fool, build your house on this rock. He's saying, Have you tasted? He's good. You've been ransomed. The blood of Jesus, you've been called out of your sin and now he calls you son, he calls you daughter, he's given you access to come to him. He says, align your life to that truth because I'll not that rock, I'll build my church. So here's what I want us to do. We're gonna take this together in just a moment, but I want us to respond first. I wanna give us some space to respond. So the band's gonna start to lead us in a song. You can stand if you want, you can sit if you want. Process through this and really just be honest with yourself. Just say, Lord, who or what does my life say is excellent? Let's respond together through singing.